and how Jesus presents that to us, especially in the uh, section often called the last discourse in John's gospel, a section that ranges from the end of chapter 13 even into Jesus' prayer in John 17. But we have been especially thinking through passages in John 14 and yesterday John 15, and this morning will be in John 16. And especially in this talk, John 16, 16 through 24. So if you would open your Bibles there. John 16, 16 through 24. I've titled this talk, Transformation. We are now about six months into 2023. I wonder if you remember when it was about six days into the new year. I wonder if you, this time around, gave any thought to what you hoped would change this year around six months ago when the new year rang in. Did you have any resolutions that are actually still alive and kicking in June? And what changes maybe were on your mind then? What changes on your, on your mind this morning that you hope to see? How is change that you know you need generally going in your life? What do we need for change? What do we need to change? How do we change? Well, if your resolutions are lying forgotten like mine and generally ineffective from year to year, I think we would agree we need more than resolution to change. We need transformation. And our passage this morning will help us think about that. In John 16, 16 through 18, we read this. Jesus says to his disciples, a little while... And you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another. What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the father. So they were saying what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. So as a reminder, we're picking up and entering into a conversation that Jesus has been having with his disciples about his coming departure. Although Jesus has been clear that he is going away from them and going to his father, the disciples, even at the end of the conversation, still don't quite get what he's trying to tell them. They're specifically caught up on these three little words, a little while What this means is not registering with them. Are they trying to figure out how long that is? Are they wondering if it's only a little while, then why be separated at all? What will it mean that they can't see him for that section of time? Couldn't they just go with him? Whatever their confusion, they seem to want more information. What is Jesus' plan, and how can they know more about it? In light of their confusion, Jesus graciously says, Guys, it seems like you have some questions. Let's read verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, 
So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? In Jesus' fashion, he does not actually answer the disciples' question, but answers a more important question they've not thought to ask. The disciples want to know about how a little while will come and go. How will it start? How will it end? And Jesus tells them about what will happen during the little while. He knows that's what they need to know because more than needing information, they need transformation. And what he's about to do in, a, in that little while will do just that. It will transform them. Like the disciples, we are often convinced, aren't we, that what we need is just more information. We simply want to know what Jesus' plan is for our life. More information on what the particular circumstances will be. Who we will marry, where we will live. Will we die young or will we die old? Jesus' priority is not on giving us information but transformation, change to our hearts. And just like the disciples, he tells us what he has done to make that happen. But before we look at the transformation Jesus says is about to happen, we need to know what actually did happen in that period of time he calls a little while. When Jesus says a little while, he is referring to his death and resurrection that's about to happen. His appearance back to his disciples after he's raised, his ascension to heaven. All are in view in Jesus' answer to his disciples. In verse 20 through 22, his death and resurrection are in view. In verse 23 through 24, his ascension is in view. The death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus are what we commonly refer to as the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us, that this is where true transformation begins in what he did. And this then is the main idea of the passage in front of us. The death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus bring life transformation. Perhaps you're looking for just such a thing. Perhaps you've grown a little out of practice as a Christian in taking the gospel and bringing it to bear on your everyday life. I pray and hope this helps you. There are two transformations that the gospel brings, and that will be the subject of the rest of my time in this session. Two transformations. The first is this. Jesus' death and resurrection transforms our reality from sorrow to joy. Jesus' death and resurrection transforms our reality from sorrow to joy. To joy. Look at verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. 
When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. How does Jesus describe the difference between the beginning of the little while and the end of it? Well, it's by what will change in the disciples' hearts. Look at verse 20. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Verse 22. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Whatever is going to happen is going to take the disciples through the entire spectrum of the human experience. They will experience grief, weeping, and lamenting, but then they will have permanent joy, peace, security, contentment, gladness. And when they are grieving, the world will be celebrating. Jesus is talking about his death that is coming very soon. In a few hours, he's going to be arrested unjustly condemned to die, crucified, and buried in a tomb. People hated Jesus. They did not believe that he was sent from God. They killed him thinking that they were doing the world a service. And once he was buried in that tomb, the disciples entered into grief, thinking truly that they would not see him again. But they would see him again. Because three days after he was crucified... Jesus came out of the tomb in resurrection life. And the sight of Jesus alive transformed the disciples' reality from sorrow over Jesus to joy in his life. Perhaps you remember earlier this year hearing about what happened on the national stage during a football game when a player in good health collapsed from a heart attack. Teammates, spectators, viewers nationwide instantly experienced a bitter dose of our universal reality. Life is not guaranteed, but death is. And when death comes to our loved ones, we react to the weight of the curse we live under. We respond in sorrow. Sorrow is the symptom that reveals what is at the core of human reality, that we are locked in the grip of death. And it is a grip that you and I cannot loosen. I think that's why we and our culture at large tries to put death out of view. Our scientists are are incessantly trying to figure out a cure for aging. And hospitals and nursing homes put away our terminally sick. We do not want to feel the sorrow unless we have no choice. And why would we? Sorrow makes us think about a broken reality that we cannot change. That's the reality that existed for hundreds of years up until the weekend in Jerusalem that Jesus is preparing for. In a little while, a new reality will be possible. The whole human experience then turns on the hinge of what Jesus did in those three days. Jesus says it will only take him a little while at a great cost to bring this new reality. 
An existence where death does not have the final word, but Jesus does. The Old Testament promised for years a person who would be the curse ender. And Jesus was about to put death to death. He would die on a cross. He would satisfy the demands of death's curse. He would take the judgment of our sin that brought death to the world. You see, the death and resurrection, what happened in that little while, brings about a new age, a new reality, a transformation of the human experience where life is now possible when before death was inevitable. Jesus illustrates how this new reality will change our sorrow to joy with the picture of a birth in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. I'm sure if you've lived through that experience, mothers, you resonate with what Jesus is talking about. How ironic that in the agony of his death, Jesus brings the joy of new birth. The point of the picture is that in light of the joy of a new baby, all suffering that preceded the birth is forgotten. Now, Jesus is not saying there will not be sorrow. He's not saying there will not be sadness in this life. But he is promising that it will be one day eclipsed by a greater joyful event. Because Jesus rose, he will return and finish what he started. And knowing that day is coming and will surely come is why our joy today is invincible. Nobody, nothing, no event can stop the resurrection from making us joyful in Jesus. Now I know, I am sure that there are people in this room weighed down by sorrow. Sorrow that you've brought into your own life or sorrow that has been brought to you. Funerals we've gone to or that you're anticipating are coming. Estranged relationships. Sin. I am sure that there are brothers and sisters this morning pinned underneath the crush of your own broken bodies and hearts. We know what it means to weep and lament. To those who are weighed down this morning, Jesus knows your sorrows. He witnessed firsthand the colossal curse that pressed down all the people around him when he walked the streets. He loved his friend Lazarus. He wept when Lazarus was buried. He is with you in your grief. And he came to take it away. Your king, your savior, your brother, and your friend Jesus made a plan to take away your sorrows. This is the Lord that we worship. The liberator, the rescuer, the deliverer. He loves us. He gave his life to get us out of a reality defined by death. And in his person, he possesses everything needed to do it. When Jesus answers his disciples in verse 20 and 23, he prefaces his answer with, truly, truly, I say to you. Those are powerful words. 
He can tell them what is about to happen because he controls reality. He will inaugurate a new world order when he reigns as life and king over death. When he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he is doing more than speaking. He is initiating a sequence of events that will bring whole new realities into existence. The words of Christ always match and describe what is. There are words here to believe and trust and claim as truth, even if it seems in your life sorrow is winning. Because of Jesus, your sorrows will have an end. Your sorrows are in the process of ending. I referenced a couple talks ago having seasons myself of sorrowful depression in which I thought that that was my new reality. I could not remember what joy felt like. I doubted I ever would again. I remember praying over and over, restore to me the joy of my salvation. If you find yourself there, hear what Jesus is saying to you. In a little while, he told the disciples, he would change reality and lift the curse of death that brings sorrow. In so many important ways, that little while is over. He came as a king to bring a kind of kingdom where people don't have to stoop as they trudge through this world, but we can be lifted and relieved as Christ takes our heaviest loads. So whatever sorrow you feel today or tomorrow, remember it is a sorrow that is on its way out. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. I wonder if you're here and you've been skeptical about Christianity because you've witnessed the joy Christians have and you know you don't have it. What makes people like the disciples change from weeping at Jesus' death to, as you flip over into the book of Acts, finding them joyfully talking about him? As the crucified and risen Savior, only just a few weeks after this, why would they hide in fear when he was crucified, then courageously die for him as martyrs? What causes Christians you know to go through very hard things, but still praise and trust God? Well, it's because the resurrection of Jesus happened. It was not a metaphor It was a historical event that altered everything we knew up to that point about humanity. Before Jesus, we all die. In Jesus, we can now live. But the only way into that life is for Jesus to die for you. And for you to surrender your life to him. We must accept that our sin deserves death. And that the cross is where payment for sins is made by Jesus. We must believe that Jesus is the king and follow him wherever he leads us. In coming, Jesus brings a new reality and with it, heart transformation. Changing our hearts is how Jesus changes our life.
Changing our hearts is how Jesus changes our life. That's his will, his desire, his express plan is to change your heart and your life. Jesus intends to remove how death influences our thinking and our living and put instead his life and his joy in its place. In some ways, he's already done it, but in other ways, he's working that out day by day. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Our heart anxiety, for example, the things we worry about, that is connected to death. In that the ultimate worry is that we will be lost and no one can save us. Jesus says, that's not true. He will bring us even through death. So won't he bring us through lesser worries? So anxiety, that's one example. Another one, our sinful habits and addictions. Those are connected to death. In that when we sin, we say there is no power greater than the curse that locks us into patterns of disobedience. But Jesus brings a new and better reality. That means sin is now no longer an unconquerable power over us. He intends to change those patterns of sin through his resurrection power at work in you. If Jesus aims to transform our hearts and our lives, what would he have us do? Well, receive his resurrection reality is true. Believe. Believe that sorrow and death is a permanent reality fully and truly ended when Jesus died to take that from us and rose to take us with him into life forever. That's what we need to do. Believe. Are you welcoming Jesus' resurrection life as your reality? Are you putting truth to work in all the various ways available to you? In your chronic sickness, is the coming glory of a risen and remade body helping you trust in Jesus through today's bodily pain? In your fear of the future, Are you remembering that Jesus will not let go of your hand in this life, nor will his grip loosen when you pass through death? In your apathy to the things of the Lord and his word, and your committed pursuit of other priorities instead, have you forgotten that all this will pass away, but life with Christ will go on? There are broken things in this room, broken friendships, Broken marriages, broken hearts, broken people. Jesus rose from the dead. And even if you are on the verge of ruining everything, even if you have already ruined everything, he can resurrect you. The gospel invites you to let go of your sin and welcome his joy by dying to yourself and living instead to humbly serve God. And others. Church, we are the resurrection joy people. And invincibly joyful people at that. No one can take our joy from us. 
When we interact with each other and carry Jesus through our lost friends and our coworkers and our neighbors and our city, we do not want anyone to smell even a whiff of death on us. We want people to see that we are confident that we will be just fine if we lose everything as long as Christ keeps us. So here's something to think about this afternoon. How might your speech, your attitude, your activities among others this week best demonstrate that your joy is in the risen Christ? Before going to work tomorrow at your office or at school or at home, prime the pump of your heart to run on gospel joy. Then your public witness will be that you live on, a, on something that the hardships and the trials and frustrations of this life cannot touch. The gospel is always the basis for our joy. The death and resurrection of Jesus are the historical, completed, supernatural events that have altered the reality we live in. Any change from sorrow to joy in your heart, speech, attitude, and actions comes because the power of the gospel events is working in you. Christian, you can have joy because Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. Jesus gives you peace, contentment, and stability for your life. It was for you that he died and rose to bring change to your life. Power to change pours from the risen Jesus in heaven to your heart through the Spirit. What an opportunity. Let us keep welcoming that change that he brings. I'm so glad we're here this morning that you and I, in different geographical places, but in one spirit, get together every Sunday to celebrate that King Jesus lives and his rule brings life to us. Keep coming back here. We need to hear that. We need to hear that Jesus is alive when for the previous six days we've walked through a world that is dying. And when we leave these gatherings, do keep in mind that we come from here to bring news of life to that dying world. What an amazing thing Jesus did in just a little while. Wow. He changed our reality from sorrow to joy, from death to life. Now there's plenty of time and opportunity in our lives together in the coming days to revel in the transformation he brings. How sweet that every joyful moment we have in Jesus will never be taken. Jesus tells his disciples what he's about to do in a little while is going to transform their life forever. His death and resurrection will completely alter their reality. Then, in verse 23 and 24, he says there's something else he will do that will transform the disciples' reality in this life. Look at verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. The second transformation the gospel brings is this. Jesus' ascension 
transforms our life with God. Jesus' ascension transforms our life with God. So another truly, truly statement from Jesus indicates a change now in Jesus' subject. He's now teaching about something else, something that pertains to a different aspect of what is about to happen. Jesus is now talking about what's going to happen after he rises. The day that Jesus references at the beginning of verse 23 is a day when they'll ask nothing of Jesus because Jesus will no longer be with them. Because he has gone to be with the Father, the disciples will no longer interact with him in a face-to-face conversation, but in prayer with God the Father. And Jesus is still focused on the disciples' experiences of joy. Did you see that in verse 24? That your joy may be full. This is now a different angle on joy, different from verse 22. In verse 22, the emphasis was the permanent joy the disciples would have because Christ raised. But here in 24, it is the ongoing and ever-enhancing experience of joy in life with God. A joy that can be filled. Even though they'll no longer live with Jesus on earth, the disciples are going to continue a relationship with God the Father through Jesus. As we've been thinking about for this series, making this relationship possible between people and the Father is a huge reason why Jesus came to earth to begin with. To reunite sinners like us back to the one who made us and loves us, even though we had run away from him in our rebellion. Jesus came down to people at war with God, laid down his life to put an end to our sin and bring us peace with God. He then returned to his father. And since then, millions of people have seen their lives reconciled back to God through Jesus. As Christians, we call God our father because when Jesus returned to heaven... He returned, having finished the work needed to bring us into God's family. Jesus brings us into life with God. And if you want to keep reading after this series is over into, verse, into chapter 17, you will see it there in Jesus' prayer. It is clear in these verses. Because of Jesus, we can talk to God as our Father and know that he welcomes us and intends to answer our requests with gifts. Has anybody ever given you a recommendation to go to a person for a certain service? Let's say like a mechanic. You got to get your car worked on. You got to get something made. And someone says to you, go to this person and tell them I sent you. Why do people say that? People say that because they're expecting their relationship with the person they're sending you to will positively influence your relationship with that person. If they are in with the mechanic, then you will have an in with the mechanic. When someone tells me that, I get hopeful that their relationship will mean that the person will give me a deal, which rarely happens. That's a different kind of experience than when I was a college student traveling somewhere and a friend from my college said, hey, my parents live in that city. You should stay with them. My friend called his parents, said I would be coming. I showed up. They had gotten the guest room ready. They asked me what I'd like for dinner. They made it for me. My hosts deeply loved their son and because their son had a friendship with me, they took me in. 
I think this is closer to what Jesus is describing, but I think it's still limited. Because the father wasn't sitting back uninvolved while Jesus was here living 33 years of perfect life, dying sacrificially, and rising victoriously for a bunch of sinners that God had a grudge against. The father was involved in that. He planned that adoption long ago. He wrote up the story. He communicated his love for ruined people in conversation with the son and the spirit and sent his only son to die to adopt us as his sons and daughters. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he returned with a glorious and beaming face to tell his father that they had done it. They had brought salvation, and because they did, the earth would soon be full of Jesus' brothers and sisters, the Father's family. So when you talk to the Father in prayer, child of God, that's who you talk to. His heart is for you, inclined to you, sympathetic in your trials, elated in your joys. He is a giving father. He is not stingy. He is benevolent. He is listening. He is inviting. Talk to him. Jesus went back to the father to open up for us to have the relationship with his father that he has. Why does Jesus say to pray in his name? Well, it seems Jesus is saying when we pray in his name, we have a guarantee that the Father will hear and answer us. That's not because Jesus' name is a lucky rabbit's foot or a magical mantra. It's because Jesus, the person, the real life being, means something to the Father. He is the eternal Son of God, the obedient and righteous servant, the suffering Savior, the one the Father says is his beloved. He is the one the Father is pleased with, the one the Father delights in. He is the only begotten Son. He is the one who died on the altar as the Lamb who saves the lost. He is the beautiful and the lovely. He is the good and the true. He is the Son who the Father will not turn away, the one who is always and always will sit right next to the Father and always have his love and attention to pray in Jesus's name is to invoke all that is so good about the father's relationship with his son to be transferred to our relationship with the father knowing how undeserving we are of that why would we ever presume to ask for such an audacious thing Why would we ever think that the Lord of Lords, the Almighty God, the Father of the perfect Son of God, would give even two seconds to people who once rejected and scorned his beloved Son? Because God is not like us. And if you come underneath the covering of his Son, he will treat you just like he treats his Son. And he will not withhold anything. Christian, believe in the love of the Father when you pray to the Father. Believe that he has every intention to to deliver on every single promise he has made to you in Christ Jesus. Believe that when you ask him for help, he is already coming. Believe that when you ask for strength, the Spirit of God supplies. 
The father's ear hears even the briefest of cries. Trials and pains and sufferings cannot drown out your voice before our God. So what is the father inviting us to ask for in Jesus' name? Well, he doesn't say. Maybe there are some clues in this passage. Jesus is telling his disciples that he'll radically transform their reality by defeating death and bringing eternal life. This alone will bring eternally protected joy to the disciples' hearts. Jesus is saying soon he will leave to go back to sit with his father on the throne of the universe and invite us to enjoy a personal son-daughter relationship with the king. So what should we ask for? Well, on the one hand, we might say after all he's done, we don't dare ask for anything. Isn't that enough? But Jesus encourages us, no, ask, ask. He tells us that the father longs to give to his children. On the other hand, we might feel prone to ask according to our felt needs, food, money, advancement, circumstantial change. To that, Jesus said, yes, yes, your, your father knows. He, he knows you're a limited creature. He knows you're dependent on these things. He'll take care of that. Those are the little things for God to do, you realize. When we have the ear of the king who loves us, the father is waiting to hear us us ask for bigger. To ask as excited children in response to the grand promises that he has made to us. When you talk to the good king as a son or a daughter, ask for a share in the kingdom. Ask him to spread his rule all over your life and your neighborhood and our world. Ask him to flood your heart and mind with more and more of his love. Ask his spirit to open up our eyes to appreciate and understand the reality of life in his presence. To know his care. To be guided by his kind providence. Ask for permission to get to know him more than you do. If the name we use is Jesus, the King of Kings, the Father's Prince, then the kingdom is open and available to us. If you aren't already, start paying attention to what you're asking for and what you are receiving. I found that when I see what he gives, I grow in knowing the giver. The worst thing we could do is not ask. Jesus says prayer with our Father is the way we know ongoing and increasing joy because when you ask, you receive, and when you receive, you know you are the Father's child. The way forward in life with God is prayer. And as I said last night, I'll say again, because Jesus keeps coming back to it, prayer together. Brothers and sisters in his family that make up this local church, Pray for the kingdom. Pray for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to transform us. Pray that you will be those who seek first Christ's kingdom and his righteousness. That you will be a church relentless to get wisdom. Who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That in your desire for God's kingdom to be set up on earth, that you would be people to whom the kingdom is promised. People who are poor in spirit people. Meek people pure in heart people, peacemaking people, 
persecuted people who rejoice that our reward in home is in heaven. Isn't it exciting to think our life on earth could be spent growing closer and closer to our Father in prayer? The opportunity is not to blindly hope that some higher power will hear us when we've hit rock bottom. He will. But this life is so much fuller and enjoyable than that. Jesus is ascended. And we have life with the Father. So to wrap up this time, thinking about the transformation Jesus brings, he came to effect massive change in this world. His death, his resurrection, his ascension bring sweeping transformation to our life. But you must be willing. We must be willing to be changed. There is eternal joy There is increasing joy in knowing Jesus. So let's invite him to bring his transformation to our hearts and to our world. Let's pray.